Welcome to the Women in Business Impact Lab podcast. Maximize your leadership potential and professional advancement and be inspired. We're delighted to be your source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development from a women in business perspective. We share our original research, explore industry and workforce trends, and interview female executives, allies, and thought leaders from across the globe. Join us for practitioner-oriented content around all things women in business, leadership challenges, talent management, organizational development, change management, and diversity and inclusion. Welcome to the Women in Business Impact Lab podcast. In this WBIL podcast episode, Dr. Kelly Hall talks with Nikki Walker as part of the Women in Business Leadership Speaker Series. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Dr. Kelly Hall. I'm a faculty member in the Woodbury School of Business, and I appreciate you taking time out of your evening to join us. Uh, The Woodbury School, along with our partners at the Women's Success Center, we're delighted to kick off this Women in Business Leadership Speaker Series, uh, where we'll have an opportunity to learn from so many amazing women. And before I introduce our speaker tonight, I want to take just a moment to cover a couple logistics things with you. Um, You may have already noticed that your audio and your video is currently disabled, and that's just to minimize distractions and background noise. However, we want to, of course, give you the opportunity to ask questions, and there's a couple ways that you can do that uh, throughout the event tonight. One, if you have questions along the way, um, you're welcome to submit that in writing through the Q&A feature, which you'll find at the bottom of this screen. And then when we get to an open discussion forum at the end, um, we'll be sure to get that question addressed for you. Alternatively, if you want to, uh, you know, pose a question verbally, you can wait till uh, the uh, discussion forum at the end use the raise hand feature, and I'll be sure to turn your mic on for you so that you can ask uh, ask the questions that you have. Now, without further delay, I'm absolutely delighted to introduce Nikki Walker to you. Um, Now, Nikki is going to share her story, um, so I will just give you a little bit of background about the incredible leader that we have here in front of us. Uh, Nikki serves as the Director of Community Engagement and DEI at DOMO. She comes to us with significant experience in strategic brand partnerships, community outreach, corporate social responsibility initiatives, and of course, she's a strong advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion. She serves on a number of local boards and is very active in our community. And her work has been, you know, widely recognized across multiple venues. She is the recipient of the 2020 Diamond Award for Excellence in Civic Engagement and Business, and is also the 2021 Women Tech Council Change Catalyst Award recipient. Um, So I am so thankful to you, Nikki, for joining us tonight. And at this point, I'll hand the floor over to you. 
Thank you, Kelly. This is gonna be fun, everybody. Thank you so much for taking the time um, to be with us tonight. Uh, I'm really, really excited about sharing my story. I'm, I'm super passionate about uh, talking to other women about my journey, which is so non-traditional uh, that oftentimes people wonder how the heck I got here. So um, it's always fun to kind of expound on that and really give some insight into how to overcome obstacles, how to um, increase engagement in your individual organizations and industries, um, and how to really raise the bar in terms of um, visibility for the things that are important to you. So we'll dig in a little with a story, because um, I like to tell stories, and I love to tell um, the story about this little girl named Nikki Walker, and she is I, I am her. I was born in uh, Jersey City, New Jersey, which if you've ever heard me speak before, you know, is the most diverse city in all of the United States of America. And I um, was there my entire childhood, which is, oh, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to change my view really quickly. I was there my entire childhood and then um, took my talents to Atlanta eventually. Uh, circled back around to New Jersey and then ended up in Utah. So that is the long and the short of my story of how I got here. But the intricate details are kind of cool. So growing up, um, I was the second daughter of three daughters. Uh, my mother was a single, a single mother, a single parent, working mother. And she was the cool mom because she worked in Manhattan and all of our friends, their parents worked locally. So we were kind of like the cool kids uh, who got to get on the bus and go into the city uh, on occasion, bring your daughter to work day, et cetera. And my mom always worked in advertising. So I thought early on in life that advertising was going to be my path. I don't know if you know this movie, but there's a classic um, black cinema called Boomerang and it stars Eddie Murphy and, um, and Halle Berry. And Eddie Murphy is like this very uh, successful ad exec. And I said, this is the life that I want. So when I graduated from high school uh, and went to college, I majored in, in mass communications. There was no PR degree back then. Uh, so that wasn't, the, that wasn't the road that we were gonna go. And there certainly wasn't an advertising degree either. So we felt like mass communications uh, would be the fastest way uh, to get to where I wanted to go, whether that was in advertising or uh, in media some way. So I'm in college, I'm having a great time, I'm in a sorority and, you know, and I'm doing all the things, running for office, and then da, 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 I get pregnant. So um, that was my first ever true hurdle. I spent my educational uh, career really excelling and advancing because I grew up in poverty. And while I didn't realize that I was poor um, until I went to college, I did know that there were things happening in my house that, um, that were unsettling in terms of money. And so my job in my head was to get my mother and my sisters and I out of poverty and to never have to experience that ever again, whether that was hunger or the lights out or the heat off. Um, these were some of the experiences that I regularly would encounter 
But because I live in a place full of love and laughter, uh, we really were able to kind of climb out of that and not let it be, um, not let it impact us so heavily. So back to college. I get to college, I'm having a great time. And then Jacob comes along. Jacob is my son and now he's 24 years old. And in fact, on May 20th, he will be graduating from college with his undergraduate degree in uh, business administration with a concentration in marketing following in his mom's footsteps. So we're really excited about that. And it really is a, is a turning point, um, not in, just in his life, but in mine as well. So um, when I left school, of course, I had to get a job. So my first job was as a bank teller. And I worked for this local bank and I hated every single moment of it. And I said, never, I, I can't do this for the rest of my life. But my coworkers had been working for that bank for 10 and 12 and 15 and sometimes even 20 years. And they would take this abuse from the manager of the bank, the bank manager. And I always wondered what was in them were not in them uh, that allowed them to be spoken to in such a harsh manner, uh, oftentimes for no reason at all. You know, as a young person, you you really try to you're trying to find your place and you don't want to step out of line. But after about three months, I said, I don't have to do this. I am going to leave and I'm going to leave these people here and they can deal with the crazy and I'll find something else to do. And I think that um, that moment when I decided uh, to take action and, and not be treated uh, in a manner that I thought was inappropriate or unprofessional. I think it really sparked a lot inside of me um, that I hold on to for the rest of my career that you'll, you'll hear a little later. So during that time while working at the bank, I also was singing. I have been a singer since I was about eight years old. I've had the opportunity to sing on uh, famous stages like the Apollo Theater in Harlem. Um, at Symphony Hall in New Jersey. Uh, I've also traveled the country. Uh, at one point, the New York Times did an, uh, did an editorial on me. This was before reality TV was a thing. Uh, they actually followed me around for a couple of days because they wanted to know what it was like to be um, an independent artist looking for a record deal. So that was a pretty cool highlight um, back then in my career. And, um, and I thought this was going to be who I was. I thought, yes, media, yes, um, advertising, but definitely singing. I'm definitely going to be on TV and I'm definitely going to sing to the people. Now, I only sing the, Amer the national anthem at soccer games. So catch me at an RSL game one day, <laughs> one day this summer. I'm sure I'll be there. Um, but singing was really a passion of mine. And so when I left the bank, I said, what am I going to do to make this my real career. So I got a manager and we would do these gigs around New York and it was really going well. And I really wanted a record deal, but I only wanted a record deal with one place. And that place was Virgin Records. And so my manager, the genius he was, he was able to get me a meeting with the head A&R, the person who signs the acts to the record labels. And um, the record executive listened to my then demo tape. And he loved it, but he looked at my pictures and he said, I was fat. <laughs> he literally said, you need to run her around the block a couple of times before we can give her a deal. We don't really know how to manage that type of body type. 
Um, and it was, you know, a few artists had just been released and they were amazing, but they were um, plus size women <clears throat> and the charts didn't really like them. This was the MTV generation and the video was so important. And so it, your image was so even more so than now, um, you know, you had to be a certain person. And so on that day, I decided that I didn't want to sing anymore because if people didn't want me the way I was, then I could go somewhere else where I could be appreciated. I always say go where you're celebrated um, because celebration helps you to understand who you are. When the people who are around you and surrounding you are giving you love and light and sharing with you who you are in their eyes, it really helps you to form who you are in your own eyes. Um, I call them, you know, your, your, your board of directors. You got to keep a board of directors around you because you're the CEO of your own life. And you want to have people who care about you and who care about your success. Um, and so those people, that board of directors, thought I was crazy for stopping my singing career. But I decided that I wasn't crazy. And I knew that I was going to go where I was wanted. So one day I said, I, I, after I stopped singing, people would call me asked me to help them get into, uh, can you help me get into this club? Do you know the owner at this place? And I realized I could get paid for sharing that information by doing public relations, but I had absolutely no clue how to do public relations. So there was a very, um, a very famous publicist in New York City who most people were afraid of because he was so powerful. And he would show up at events with his clients who at the time were Whitney Houston, Mary J. Blige, um, uh, oh, what's her name? I can't think of her name, but people of that caliber. DMX was actually on his roster at the time as well. And uh, so he was intimidating. He was an intimidating creature. And I was a 20 something year old girl with no experience, but I had gumption. And my gumption moved me to go to his office unannounced, uninvited and ask for an internship. Uh, and that's exactly what I did. I knocked on his door. I asked for a meeting and I had on jeans that day. And I'll tell you, I'm aging myself. This is how long ago it was. I had on jeans that day. And he said to me, we don't do business in dungarees in this office. Come back tomorrow and dress appropriately and we can talk. So the next day I came back in a skirt suit because that was appropriate attire for a woman um, at the time. And I came back and he had placed a desk in his office because he had been so impressed with, um, with my gumption and, and my ability to simply ask for what I wanted. So tip number two, always, always ask for what you want because closed mouths do not get fed. So for 18 months, I sat in this office on 7th Avenue in New York with floor to ceiling windows and was able to look out and see all the fancy people and the fabulous people. Um, and he kind of threw me into the water and said, if you want to be a publicist, here are the things you need to do. And here are some clients. Go do it. And, you know, he sort of pushed me along the way and gave me all the wisdom and the information that I really needed to know to be successful in that career. And I was. So for 18 months, I was probably the best publicist he had, but I also still had this little baby at home. And because it was entertainment public relations, I found myself out late at night um, and it wasn't the life that I wanted to create for my son. So I left that organization with my now newly um, obtained PR experience. And I was hired at a firm that did beauty public relations. 
And that firm uh, only did spa beauty. So if your product was sold in a spa, then this company would represent you in the media. And I went there and I, I loved it. I had just lost 98 pounds. I had gotten my first apartment by myself, moved out of mom's house. And now I am working in PR um, in, a, in a New York City firm. It was the dream. That dream um, was such a good fit for me that by the time I left that agency four and a half years later, I had gone from an account rep to the senior vice president of PR and I was directing over 20 clients in my portfolio. And back then, you know, PR is a lot different now than it was then. Back then it was all about getting placements in national magazines. So each one of my 20 clients was contractually owed four magazine placements every single month. So I worked my butt off and so did my team and they were an incredible group of people. When I left that agency, um, I left because my passion was gone. I wanted to leave New York, but I left New York um, as a representative as that, of that company. I had done so well that the CEO said, we can't let you leave. You'll have to start a new, um, a new office in Atlanta. If you're going to Atlanta, mix up the peach pie is what he said. So I um, take this move to Atlanta and now the agency has grown because I've worked to grow it. I asked for what I wanted. And I went to the CEO one day and said, what about fashion? What about black beauty products? What about retail? And every time I said, what about it? He said, go get it. And I was such a go-getter that um, some of our clients were Old Navy, Guess Handbags, Norma Kamali, the Spiegel catalog, uh, catalog. And then we created this black beauty division that had all of what we call legacy brands, um, from the Black community. So brands like Cream of Nature and Black Opal and General Treatment, those all became a portfolio that he would have never had had I not asked, what about? So always, again, this is another moment when I asked and I received and I moved up in that company so incredibly quickly that it was a little bit scary. But it was time for me to leave New York. And my son was probably about six or seven at this point. And I wanted him to grow up somewhere outside of the city. So I moved to Atlanta. Still the city, little did I know. Um, but I launched the Atlanta office of this agency. And what was happening was that in New York, we were charging twelve dollars and $15,000 a month and nobody sneezed, right? But in Atlanta, people hadn't yet really um, sort of soaked up the uh, worthiness of PR and PR campaigns. So no one was willing to pay those prices. My company said we were spending too much money on the office and weren't making enough. So we have to shut down and I have to come back to New York. Well, of course I was not coming back to New York. I left on purpose. So in that moment, in that moment, I decided that I was going to launch my own agency. And that's exactly what I did. So in 2007 ish, I launched NW Public Relations. And what I was able to do was to provide a service to small businesses that they otherwise would not have had the opportunity to have. So they got a New York City publicist with New York City contacts and national brand contacts for as little as $3,000 a month instead of $13,000 a month. My agency ended up being wildly successful and mostly because my clients were women who were entrepreneurs and really looking for a boost. And that part of my life was so important to me uh, because I found myself 
not only um, not only working with these people as clients, but working with them as a mentor and helping them sort of shape their businesses and shape the understanding of who they were. Again, having this board of directors around you is important. And I found myself on the board of directors for these business owners. And it was an incredible opportunity that I will cherish really forever. I grew my business out of uh, Simply Beauty into fashion events um, and celebrities also in Atlanta. So worked, uh, I had that agency for about 10 years. And uh, in the midst and the mingle of the 10 years, I did take one job. I took one job um, out of that 10 years. And I took the job because someone came to find me and they said, you are exactly what we need to relaunch this new product. And the new product was a product that I had known and loved growing up. It was a hair care product. And the hair care product had gone bankrupt. The company had gone bankrupt and then it was purchased. And when it was purchased, they brought in a whole new marketing team. And someone had mentioned my name. Someone from my Black Beauty portfolio said, you have to have Nikki Walker. So they called me in and basically made me an offer on the spot to become the director of PR for this major brand. And of course, I said yes. It was the first time in my career that I was ever um, in a space that was just a space that felt like it was for me. This was a Black hair care product, which meant it was, was for me and it was for people who looked like me and I worked with people who looked like me. And finally, I had a mentor who looked like me and she was the chief marketing officer, phenomenal human being, but I had never worked in a space where, um, where I got to see excellence on a level that was beyond mine. And, you know, I think back on that and, and always thinking about being at the top of the pyramid it's not always the best place to be. You don't want to be the smartest person in the room. You kind of want to um, have a room where there are people who can edify you and who can help you to grow. So I did that for two years and we relaunched the brand and the brand won all kinds of awards, including a silver anvil, which NPR is basically an Oscar. Um, so we won this Oscar, this PR Oscar, and, um, and the company because of the, the nature of the product, the market was changing. And this was a, a hair relaxer product. And the naturalista movement was happening. And so the sales just in general in the industry started to go down in the company after all of our two years of hard work and winning awards went bankrupt again. So I went back to um, servicing all of my clients. And one day there was a downturn in the economy. And my clients, because they were small businesses, had to make some changes and make adjustments. And I was the adjustment. So I went from one day having seven clients to probably four weeks later having zero clients and no other way to feed my kid, pay my rent, or you know, otherwise live a life. I, my son at this point is in college. Um, he was probably a freshman and he was living on campus. Well, after I ran through my savings in six months, um, I was homeless. So a lot of people don't know this, but it's a story that I don't mind telling because it really is a story of endurance and it really is a story of faith. And it is really a story of, um, of picking yourself up and, and, and moving on. And so for about four months, I was 
living on my friend's couch. My son, I had spent the last, like I had written the last check out of my account to make sure that his tuition was paid so that he could stay on campus and have somewhere to sleep and eat and, and do all of the things and not be disrupted in the middle of his college career by um, being unhomed. And so um, one day at about midnight, I got, a phone, uh, I got an email, a LinkedIn message. It was a LinkedIn message. And I thought it was a joke. <laughs> and it said, this was the second time in my career somebody said, we've been looking for you and we need you. And it was Young Living Essential Oils here in, in Utah. I'd never heard of the company before. I thought it was a hoax. Um, and so I didn't respond. And the next day I get another message from Young Living Essential Oils and this time it's the president. And the president says, I know this sounds crazy, but we've looked at your LinkedIn profile, we've looked at your resume and you have all of the things that we need. And we've been trying to fill this position for a year. So they didn't know what my situation was, but I'm gonna tell you what my situation was. When they put me on an airplane, I had $5 in my pocket. I was wearing a borrowed suit from one of my aunts. And if they did not pick me up from the airport or take me to dinner, I would have starved and been stranded at the airport. <laughs> and I knew that going in, but I had faith. And I had faith in God and I had faith in my abilities. I knew that if I flew out to Utah, I could convince these people to bring me on board and that would be the best thing that ever happened for them. Well, that's exactly what happened. They were the best thing that happened for me and I was the best thing that happened for them. Young Living went from uh, an obs not obscure, but from a brand that really was not in the national public eye because it's an MLM. So all of their communication was person to person. And what we were able to see was um, business um, publications, beauty publications, fashion publications, so incredibly interested in this brand. And we blew it up. We had something like 200 million impressions in the first six months that I worked there. We did the Oscars, we did the Emmys, we did the Grammys, um, we did all of the award shows. It was a phenomenal experience. I had so much passion for that place and that job that I thought I would retire from Young Living. About two and a half years in, I lost my passion. I lost my passion because there were, there were holes in the system that I could see. And those holes all dealt with DE&I. Um, fortunately, when I got there and surprisingly, there were two black executives at Young Living, um, but the lion's share of Young Living members were not African-American. And at one point, all the African-American folks got together and said, we need to have a segment here. We need to feel loved and wanted. And I wanted that for them really badly. And unfortunately, we could not come to terms on how to make that happen. So I left. I gave him my resignation without a new job, without any prospects of a job, but my passion pushes me. And once I lose the drive, once I lose the enthusiasm, and I think this is not just me, but for most folks, things change and, and then it becomes a job. You know, I worked there for so long and it never felt like a job. It felt like a calling. And then it didn't. Um, much to my surprise, people had had their eyes on me. And I um, and Domo reached out. And the then CEO of Domo said, 
to the person who brought me in. I don't care what she wants to be called. Don't let her go to another company. So I went to Delmo and they actually let me pick my own title, which was really cool. So this was the third time that somebody really, really wanted me. And this is where I am now. So I've been with Domo for three years um, and I started in the role of Director of Brand Experience and Community Engagement, which really gave me the opportunity to kind of go out into the community and see what the needs were um, and realize how Domo and the tech industry as a whole could help. That experience, this experience that I'm currently experiencing is the most fulfilling job I've ever had, ever. Um, we went through a season where our DE&I space was very reactive and very, um, it was, is very ad hoc. So this happens, so we do this, that happens, so we go here. And, you know, a successful strategy is more than, uh, you know, Marco Polo. It's more than just kind of this happens and then that happens. And recently, I was promoted to the director of DEI just here in January. Um, and unfortunately, it came through a tragic, uh, a tragic loss for Domo and for the community at large um, with the loss of our DEI director, Cameron Williams. Um, but Cameron and I had worked together so closely during the time that he was with Domo and I was with Domo. He as a DEI director, me as the community engagement director, figuring out how to give um, marginalized communities access, not only to Domo, but into the tech industry. The tech industry is so lucrative and it's one of the few industries where you don't need a college degree to be wildly successful. And we thought it was really important to share that with people. And so today uh, we've got strategies in place that are gonna ensure that the barriers to access are lowered, at least starting with us. So we're working now this year with no less than a dozen organizations out in the community, diverse organizations from the LGBTQ plus chamber um, to the NAACP to Howard University and other HBCUs. Uh, we're also working with all of the universities here, UVU, uh, the, the U, BYU, Westminster, Salt Lake Community College. We've got plans for all of those schools. And what that is gonna do is really, um, is really help us to solidify ourselves as a leader, as a thought leader in the DEI space. And when I came on board, that was the promise that I made to the CEO. If you want to be a thought leader in this space, I will make you that because I'm good at this. I'm good at sharing a message and I'm good at strategizing. And so once you know what you're good at, you can make a space at any table. And regardless of your title, you can lead from any place at that table. And I am living proof of that, um, not only in my, my space at Domo, but in my journey as a whole, I've been leading people, I've been leading ideas, um, and I've been leading platforms for most of my life. And you know, it is a calling, like I said earlier, it's a calling. And I think that when we find our calling, when we find our purpose, and my purpose, the purpose that I found um, was to, with a grateful heart, help people um, in whatever capacity that meant, in whatever capacity I could serve. I look at myself as a servant leader, and I 
am so grateful for the opportunity to serve. You know, we get to serve. People uh, often would say, oh, I have to do this or I have to do that. But if you change your vocabulary from I have to to I get to, it changes your entire view on the world, on your career, on your status in the community, on your availability to your family um, and to other obligations in, in your life. So here we are now in 2022, hopefully almost through the pandemic. Um, and so what's next, right? Well, next is really looking out into the community to see who is the next generation of leaders. I feel like for all of us, it is our innate responsibility to give a hand up to the next generation because representation matters. And here in our space where we are surrounded by men, where men are the ruling class, if you will, um, it's really important for young girls and young women early in their career or even prior to getting in their career when they're still in their educational career for them to see and, um, and be with women who have achieved some level of success, whatever that looks like, um, so that they know that they can do it too. And here in Utah, obviously, it's even harder to find a woman of color uh, who can guide another young woman through those circumstances. And I'm so incredibly grateful um, that I've been placed here in Utah because the things that I've been able to do here would never have happened in a big city like New York or in a big city like Atlanta. But here in Utah, this is the place. This is the place where everybody can find a place. Everybody can lead. Everybody can make an impact here. And I just, I encourage you, I implore you um, to join organizations that partner with young women or that have young women in them so that you can be a light to them so that they can see this beacon and that they can understand who they are going to be when they grow up. I'm still trying to grow up. I'm not so sure that this is exactly who I'm going to be when I grow up, but the journey is fun and I know it's not over for me. And um, I hope that this uh, insight, just a little bit about me, I know folks follow me on, on social media and you kind of see the highlight reel, but nobody really has the opportunity to understand the, the background and how I got to the highlight reel, how I get to stand next to Mitt Romney, or how I do television interviews, or why I'm on a cover of a magazine. These are gifts. They are gifts um, from my higher power because I have followed his direction and I have followed the calling. And, um, you know, not to sound too woo woo, but um, I really believe there's a, there's a voice inside of you. Uh, and if you follow that voice, it's never gonna lead you in the wrong direction. So I hope that somewhere in that spiel, you found some level of encouragement, um, some level of, of uh, inspiration, and a couple tips in between. I often stop around here because I love to hear, I'd love for this to be interactive. And I know we can't, I can't see you, but you can see me. Um, I'm gonna ask Kelly to come back on because she can unmute microphones and do all of those kinds of things. Um, but yeah, this that's Nikki Walker and that's my journey. Um, and looking forward to questions and comments.
Thank you so much, Nikki. Uh, that was awesome. There was a lot of great tips embedded in there and your story is so inspirational. Um, we had a chat come in um, from Tori, who you know certainly is feeling very inspired from this as well. Um, and we do have a couple questions. And just as a reminder to the audience, um, you can use the raise hand feature um, if you would like for um, us to get your mic on so that you can ask Nikki a question. You can also funnel questions through the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. Um, so I'll start with some of the ones that we have here. Um, now, you are certainly fortunate to be in a company that is, um, you know, prioritizing um, initiatives around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, one question uh, that has come in is, um, how have you been able to build equitable systems at Domo so that when diverse talent does come in, um, they feel included once they're there? It is, that is such a great question. And it's a question that I think a lot of DE&I um, specialists here in Utah struggle with because it really is a question of not even just systems. It really is about changing the culture. And once you're able to embed belonging into your culture, um, then those things happen and uh, people feel like they have a voice and they have a place uh, in that organization. And so for us, it's been not only policy changes, last year, I wanna say, no, actually in 2020, um, we took the parity pledge for people of color. And that pledge said that if you have an open position, vice president and above, uh, you would have a person of color on the interview panel before you did the interviews. And the original parity pledge says that for women, if there is a vice president above, you will, um, you will not interview until there's a woman. Well, we took those pledges and then we went a step further and turned it into policy. And so now at Domo, for any open position, there has to be a person from an underrepresented minority community and a woman on the interview slate in order for the interview to take place. And that's because in recruiting, you know, talent is everywhere, opportunity, not so much. So we have to make it our business. We have to be intentional about reaching out to other communities and offering them the opportunity to share their talent. And what we were able to find in that change of policy was that the fourth quarter of 2020, 38% of our new hires were diverse, either women or of diverse backgrounds. And what that is beginning to do is change the halls. It's changing what the phone calls look like or the Zoom calls look like. Um, because when I started at Domo, I was one of three African-American people. And that number has increased significantly uh, in the past three years. And not just Black people, because diversity is not just about Black and white. Diversity is about differing abilities. It's about veteran status. It's about women who are going back to work. So many strands of diversity. So beyond looking at policy and creating policies um, that really actually say we care about this, we also do things like partner with organizations that are outside of DOMO. So for instance, 
working with the Black Chamber gives our our entire um, you know group of Domo sapiens the opportunity to engage with a community that they may not know so much about. Um, or for the African-American folks there, it gives them the opportunity to reach into the community and find where their, their people are, where the organizations are, where the churches are, and the barbershops and the hairstylists and all those kinds of things. Same with, so we partner with the Black Chamber, the LGBTQ Chamber, um, the Polynesian American community. Um, you know, we are making it so that we have memberships in these organizations that transfer over to our, our people. So if we have, if Domo has a membership, that means all Domo sapiens have a membership. So that we are supporting this idea of what happens after five o'clock when you go home. Because even if there's an inclusive community at work, in order to retain people, they still have to be able to manage their lives. And so what happens after five o'clock when you know all of the people that I know are gone and off with their family and their communities? So we um, really are trying to create equity in social spaces, also in policy, um, so that they can go hand in hand and people can have a full, uh, a full rounded experience. Thank you. Um, another question that came in would be, um, what would be some pieces of advice uh, that you might give someone who is going into a leadership position for the first time? Um, do your research. Know what is expected of you and then exceed the expectation. And doing that really means socializing yourself with the people who are, um, who are already in that space who can give you insight into what the culture looks like at that level, to what the, um, what the temperature is for whatever it is that you wanna do. And always, as I said already, ask for what you want. Ask for what you want because that little voice inside of you that's telling you to ask is telling you that for a reason. So follow your nose. Thank you. And that's actually kind of a good segue into another question, which uh, referred back to uh, your strategy for using what about when you're trying to, you know, advance a new idea with leadership. Um, have you encountered a situation where your what about tactic didn't work as intended? And what is your recommendation for people who find themselves in that position? So I wouldn't recommend doing what I did was, which was leave because <laughs> the only time I what about didn't work was um, when I was trying to look at strategy um, at Young Living and to their credit, um, to their credit, you know, it could have been the wrong timing. It could have been, um, you know, the, the leadership was changing. So many things could have happened um, that caused us not to be able to meet in the middle. Um, but for me, it was so incredibly important that I had to leave. Um, when you have a what about uh, and you come to a, an impasse, it's important to ask more questions. And that's the thing that I didn't do. And do I regret it? Uh, no, I'm here where I am now and this is where I'm supposed to be. But had I asked the questions more wise, always ask why. You ask why until you exhaust the why. And I've shared this with students a lot, um, you know, until you have a real answer, because a lot of times when you ask what about or why, you kind of get the fluff. 
And you want to be able to cut through the fluff and to really understand what the core message is, the core reasoning behind the no. And you can do that by asking why. Thank you. Um, another question going back to the um, topic of inclusion. So obviously you are in a role that enables you to really shape these uh, policies and systems and have a big impact. Um, if you're giving advice to someone who is not in that kind of position, but wants to support inclusivity on a one-on-one -on -one basis, not necessarily from a leadership position, uh, what is your advice there? Inclusion starts with you. Like it really, really does. And, uh, you know, I, I, I have a talk, um, you've got to put the I in inclusion, like you are the I in inclusion. And so inclusion is about communication. So I tell people to just communicate, meet someone who you haven't met before, have a strike up a conversation with someone who doesn't look like you, who's not from your neighborhood, who's not of the same faith background, um, because it rounds out your life experience. The more you get to know about someone else, really the more you learn about yourself um, and to have these diverse relationships. It's about relationships. So communication leads to relationships. And the more you communicate and relate with people, the more inclusion you'll see and the, uh, the more diversity you'll see in your own social circles. And we grow it out of that. I always tell people, you know, if you are doing, um, if you go to a seminar or you do an inclusion training, the next step is to have, is to have that conversation at the dinner table. Talk to your kids, talk to your spouses and your partners about what you learned and then let them carry the message. We need lots of ambassadors to make diversity and inclusion work. So be an ambassador for diversity and inclusion um, by communicating, creating relationships and sharing that with your internal, um, with your internal group of people. Thank you. Um, another question on the topic of leadership. So you've had the good fortune of working, you know, with leaders in New York and Atlanta and Utah, and um, certainly in a variety of different arenas. Um, are there certain mistakes that you have seen leaders make uh, more often than not? So what would be some things to steer away from um, if you're trying to be an effective leader? Effective leaders create more leaders. And if you are not, not building up your team, then you are doing something wrong. If in two or three years, your little birds aren't ready to fly out of the nest, you've done something wrong. And I, I use this example, I, uh, when I was at the PR firm in New York, um, I had an intern program and then I had junior staff who would report to me. And after I left, my junior staff and those interns would all call me to tell me what they were doing next. And they were doing things like running PR departments for multi-billion dollar companies. They were journalists at fashion magazines and beauty magazines. They were starting their own agencies and doing incredibly well. And that is because as a leader, I coached up. So I think when leaders don't coach up, they're making a big mistake because the more, um, the better my leadership is, um, the better my leader looks. And so it's important for leaders to, to keep that top of mind. We wanna coach up and we wanna build more leaders. Thank you so much. 
Any other questions from the audience? We've had quite a few here. So thank you so much, Nikki, for all of your words of wisdom and um, you know, being vulnerable, sharing you know, those critical parts of your journey and your story. Um, I certainly think we are all walking away with something. Uh, what I would encourage our attendees to do is to take a moment and think about uh, you know, what really resonated with you from this discussion and uh, jot down a couple notes about that. And then think about how you can build some action items around that. So whether that uh, you know, pertains to Nikki's advice in um, you know, personal career strategies, this idea of asking for what you want, uh, going out there and getting it, you know, pushing leaders to think about what's next. Uh, so using the what about strategy um, or, or really looking to, to think about, you know, what can you do to build inclusive spaces? Um, whatever it is, I encourage you to build some action items around it um, and start putting it into practice. Nikki, again, thank you so much um, for, um, you know, the time um, that you have given us and all of the great advice. Um, those of you on the call, we will be here again the same time next week um, with our next speaker. Um, so we hope to see you again there. So Nikki, thank you very much, everyone. Have a good evening and Follow take care. Follow me on LinkedIn if you're not already. I'm just Nikki Walker on LinkedIn, so I'll look for everybody. And thank no, you. Heidi, you can't work for me yet. I see your Q&A. Offline <laughs> <laughs> <my> conversation. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Nikki. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Women in Business Impact Lab podcast. We hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.